Amen. You can be seated. We'll dismiss our school-aged kiddos to the back. Looks like they're following whom? The McKenzie's? Yes, there they go. Okay. While they're headed out and uh, we get seated, I invite you to open uh, your Bible if you brought one with you um, or maybe a device. Uh, We'll have some of this on the screen uh, to Mark chapter 1. And we'll continue. Um, this is a little series we're starting the new year uh, called This Invitational Life. And uh, last week we talked about uh, the fact that we've been invited to know God. Basically, that is, you know, as God created us and walked with Adam and Eve and walked with Abraham and walked with Noah and Enoch and several others, um, this is the invitation to us. We've been invited to walk with God. And this was. Understood with even greater clarity when Jesus came and he walked with us and invited us to walk with him. And we know Hebrew says that he's the exact representation of the Father. So as we see Jesus, we see who God is. Today I want to continue um, this kind of idea of invitation. But uh, today the invitation is to follow Jesus. But it's much more than that. The invitation is really to become like him. To become like Jesus. To be shaped into his image, Romans tells us. Paul would say, as we behold the glory of God, that we're being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. This idea of transformation, he would say in Romans 12, that this idea of of being not conforming to the world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind in the likeness of Jesus. So much so that the early church would see, right, Christians... They were first called Christians at Antioch as they, would, they looked like little Christ. That this is the way that Christ would operate and this is what he would do and how he would love and how he'd interact. As I was thinking and studying this, I uh, remember just kind of in my own life. Um, when I was a junior in high school, uh, some of you know my story. I was raised, uh, my dad was a pastor um, and he planted several churches and pastored several others And so I was raised in a Christian home to two very godly parents, Um, very distinct memories of me waking up as a a young kid and seeing my parents in the word or praying for me and my siblings. And this was the real deal to them. But it didn't really become my faith, although I felt God speak to me maybe even at an early age. And I learned, I kind of grew up in a culture where there was a lot of do's and don'ts. But this idea of following Jesus in this personal way was somewhat foreign to me and not because of the way I was raised. It's just kind of how it worked in my brain. I remember as a college, uh, I mean, as a a high school junior starting the year and a youth pastor who wasn't even my youth pastor came uh, to the, the, you know, the school lunch shift that day. I went to a private school and um, I had met him a time or two and he asked me this question. He said, Luke, what's, what's God telling you? What's What's, what's Jesus forming in you? And he said it with this like such personal, you know, connotation. Like, are you really walking with Jesus? And his statement kind of struck me back. And I was like, no, uh, you know, I'm doing the right things. You know, I'm doing all the right things. I'm, I'm not doing those things like, like, you know, those people are. I'm doing the right things. This is what I'm doing. And he said, I didn't ask you anything about what you're doing. I said, what's, what's Jesus sharing with you? What's he forming in you? What's he, what's he calling you to? And again, that was so foreign to me. And I began to kind of this fundamental shift in my life of 
as I remember it now, just really digging into the word of God, listening to the, for the voice of God. And that started a trajectory in my life. It's a milestone that I go back to time and time again of what God did in that season as a junior um, in high school. I began to hear him and hear a call, for, uh, call to ministry on my life. And um, this season of brokenness in my life where just, I would just weep uncontrollably and try to hide it from everyone just for the brokenness of my own sin. God was doing something really unique in me that was foreign from what I'd experienced before. Eugene Peterson, speaking about this kind of idea of uh, doing, uh, following Jesus, this is what he said as he contrasted with um, the way that most Americans live. He says this, For the biblical way is not much to present us with a moral code and tell us live up to this, nor... Is it to set our system of doctrine and say, think like this and you will live well? The biblical way is to tell a story and invite us in, to live into this. This is what it looks like to be human in this God-made, God-ruled world. This is what is involved in becoming and maturing as a human being. We'd go on to say that we do violence to the biblical revelation when we use it for what we can get out of it. Or what we think will provide color and spice to our otherwise bland lives. That results in a kind of boutique spirituality. Meaning God as decoration or God as enhancement. That phrase shocked me when I read it uh, last week. This boutique spirituality. And I think it just expresses, and maybe not you, but it certainly describes right Christianity in the West. This boutique spirituality where it's as you know I'm gonna use God and my allegiance to him quasi allegiance to him as some kind of decoration on my life I'm gonna add it to the other things of uh, things that describe me but don't define me they just describe me in a sense like I'm a Democrat or Republican um, you know I'm a Louisianian or whatever those things are and we'll add to the end of that that I'm also a Christian this boutique spirituality, but that is not the call in any of the Gospels. I would challenge you to read through, even as I did this week, some of the Gospels. This call to follow Jesus is so much greater than just this adornment onto the edges of our lives. This call was that we would be all in, that we would give him everything. Jesus would even describe it. If you want to be my disciple, he would describe it as, then you've got to take up a cross and follow me. He would warn those that would follow him that you better count the cost because the cost is great. And it's death to you so that Christ could live in you. You find no sort of call to a boutique spirituality in the gospel, but far from it. I want to start in Mark chapter 1 of Jesus calling uh, his first disciples. And we're going to kind of frame this. We're going to look at a few snapshots of Jesus today. It's different than what we normally do is we pick one text and we kind of walk through that one text. And that'll start um, here again in, in just a couple weeks. But I want to pan out and just kind of take an overview of three different teachings, illustrations that Jesus, where we see him describe well what it means to really follow him first in mark 1 following jesus requires a new vision 
says in verse 16, passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. You've heard this, right? You get this picture. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats mending their nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat and hired, and the hired serv- with the hired servants and they followed him. Again, not to get everything out of this passage, but first it's familiar for those of you who've been in church for very long. You've, you've heard this, this calling of these first disciples. And we see that these specific uh, were, uh, disciples were fishermen. Simon and Andrew and then James and John. It says there very clearly that they were fishermen, which is this is, this is what they did. This was their livelihood. They were in a culture where you learned right from your father kind of what the trade would be. This is everything they knew. The horizon of their lives were limited by the deck of the boat that they were in. This is what they would do. This is what they would become. They would even probably, these fishermen would never even leave Galilee except maybe to travel to Jerusalem a few times. But this, was, this would be the limit of, of the expanse of their life. They were destined to live and die in that one village And then Jesus comes along and he calls them into something greater. And they respond to the call of Jesus on their lives. And because of their response to this call, not to just believe certain things, not to just adorn the edges of their life with some kind of new doctrine, they left everything to follow him. These were uneducated men. Remember the time when, when, uh, when the Holy Spirit was doing these powerful things, they were speaking in such a way and everyone's wondering like, who are these uneducated men? Also remember with Simon, they, they, these were men that had this very distinct accent that you could tell they were from the country, right? You ever seen those people, met those people? You could tell very clearly with this thick accent. But God used them to shape the course of history. But it required them to step out in faith and to really follow him. John becomes the bishop of Ephesus, this fisherman. Peter goes to Rome. Andrew to the border of Russia, all of them martyrs for Christ because, and in doing so, they shaped the world as we know it. God used them in incredible ways, all because they responded to the call of Jesus. Notice also that the scripture points out, and Mark's doing a, it seems like he's making an effort that we would see a couple things here in this passage that they left everything at once. They left their tools, they left their nets, they left the other ones fishing, they left their boats. It says there that they just basically dropped it all. Verse 18, and immediately they left their nets and they followed him. I was just thinking about this. Like, you know, what kind of call from Jesus unto your life would require, would spur in you such dramatic obedience where that you would leave everything that you knew as a way of life that you would you would leave every tool that you had that provided any sort of security you would leave those things and to follow him it must have been a pretty convincing call 
Mark points out twice in both pictures, one that immediately Jesus called them and immediately they left to follow him. In verse 20 of James and John, and immediately he called them and they left their nets and then they left their father Zebedee and the boat. This is always this bewildering picture of oh, Zebedee just like, man, like the job just got harder for me, right? My, where'd my boys go? They just took off and followed some rabbi down the beach. This is a picture of a fundamental shift, a paradigm shift. They were no longer living to be fishermen. They were now living to follow Jesus. Jesus was redefining who they would become. You remember even way back after, uh, after Peter at the end of Jesus' life would deny him. You remember the story? And Jesus would be crucified and raised and he, he appeared, remember, to Peter. Peter went back to fishing. Just that's what he knew. I'm going to go back to what I knew, to what I know. And again, the same picture plays out again as Jesus reminds Peter of the specific call on his life. Requires a new vision of who you are, new dreams of what you might become. Again, this is not a boutique spirituality where we're adding Jesus to something. He becomes the center. The next snapshot So that was the invitation. This is the explanation. Uh, Flip over to Mark 12. This happens more than once in uh, this little scene playing out in the life and ministry of Jesus. We're going to jump in. Verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he had answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one There's no other beside him. And to love him with all all, all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. The explanation is that following Jesus involves everything it involves everything this is not the cafeteria plan where we get to pick what parts of Jesus we want to follow oh we want to follow Jesus dying on the cross for everyone that's 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 the good one and not him turning over the tables in the temple we want to follow the Jesus that is uh, born in Bethlehem all cute and cuddly not the picture of him in Revelation coming back on a white horse with a sword in his hand and a tattoo on his thigh we don't want any part of that story right where all the armies of the world set themselves up against him, and there's no fight. He opens his mouth and decimates everything. That's how the thing ends. We don't want that picture of him. I go into, uh, I used to go into, uh, notice, you know this picture of Jesus praying in the garden. You've probably seen it before, right, with a little halo on his head, and he's, you know, hands clasped, that everyone, every good Christian, probably your grandparents had this in the living room at some point. 
I've never seen one of Revelation of him coming in on the white horse in anyone's living room ever, right? The blood up to the bridle of a horse. That one's not there. Following Jesus involves everything. He mentions here, he's quoting the Shema, the heart, soul, mind, and strength. This was God's direction to the Israelites way back in Deuteronomy. And this has been the standard from the beginning. This was never really possible for them to fully attain, to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that's why they had the whole sacrificial system. Even the guy that answered him and said, Jesus, I believe that you're right. That to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself is so much more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. He understood, right, that they had this whole sacrificial system that was built up because they knew they would fall short of this. And so they would have to sacrifice the lambs and the goats and they would have this sacrificial system where the high priest would go in and kill an animal so that the wrath of God didn't have to kill the people. And it would temporarily satisfy the wrath of God against sin. They understood they would never live this out perfectly, that they could never attain this. That's why the sacrifices were necessary. To live this out in the Old Testament is like a little boy trying to jump up and touch the moon or something. Like, he might jump a little higher every day, but he's never going to touch the moon. It's just never going to happen. That was the Old Testament of these, that was the law, was to show us that we fall so far short of God's perfect standard. But Jesus took this to the next level. He showed us that through the power of the Holy Spirit, that this would actually be possible in our lives. Again, not perfectly, but increasingly. Just as Christ said to his disciples, if you love me, so we talked about last week, if you love me, you will keep my commandments in John 14. The father could have said the same to Christ. Jesus kept the father's commandments because he loved the father. The Shema was Christ's great confession. His heart, his soul, his mind and strength were in perfect unison as he loved the father with a perfection that should humble us to the very core of our beings. Jesus presented a possibility of real, holistic change, not a segmented one that I want to give him my heart, but not my soul, or my soul, but not my mind, or my heart, mind, and soul, but not my strength. I run into many people today who will say, I want to love God with my mind, but not my money. Or, you know what, I'll give him my money, but not my sexual ethic, or I will give him my body, but not my thoughts. ran into a businessman many years ago who was doing some unethical things and he was connected to our church in a way and I engaged him on this very question and said man those things that you're doing in business seem a bit unethical and he said man don't confuse this was a pastor don't confuse my business life with my church life they're two separate things and I said oh you missed the shema I didn't say that's what I wanted to do though right like, no, you don't get it, man. That, that's boutique spirituality. That's I want to I follow the Jesus that I want to follow, the one that looks like me and loves the things that I love. And in essence, you're not following Jesus at all. The scriptures are clear that the heart is central in loving God. We are to, Proverbs 4.23, we are to keep our heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Those who are good, are those who have good stored up in their hearts, Luke 6, 45. Purity of the heart is required for those who love God and wish to worship him, Psalms 24. Indeed, only those with pure hearts, Matthew 5, will ultimately see God. 
whether in this life by faith or in the next life to come by sight, 1 John 3 talks about. We're to love God with all of our heart, but not just our heart. We're to love him with our soul. We're to love, not only to love God with our heart, but also our soul. Sometimes it says spirit synonymous with spirit. In our devotion to God, our soul is responsible for the highest spiritual exercises. It's the seed of our emotional activity. Christ's obedience was nowhere more tested than in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he says of himself that his soul was very sorrowful even to death. The soul expresses sorrow and joy that comes with the life of faith. Maybe we can understand it this way. The heart relates to the will and the soul to the emotions. Now, we use it synonymously. When we say our heart, we see a sad story and it says, man, that makes my heart hurt. Or that I love you with my whole heart. We're kind of using both of those together. This, what scripture would separate as heart and spirit or soul. God requires both, but he keeps going as if that was not enough. To love God with our whole mind involves the seed of our intellectual life. This is what Paul would talk about in Romans 12 is of the renewing of your mind. To love God with our mind is also to love him with the right dispositions and attitudes. Not only thinking about him correctly, but submitting our thinking to his character and what he reveals to us. It's taking our thoughts captive and making them subject to Christ. This is part of loving God with our minds. Our mind is the battlefield of life. This is where Satan will often come. This is where temptations start. This is where wrong belief starts that ultimately leads into wrong action. Because we are finite people, we will never get to the point where we have no need of learning more and more about God. We see this again in Christ. His love for God meant that he applied not only his heart and soul, but also his mind. It says that even as a young kid that he was learning, he was growing in stature and wisdom. If it was necessary for Jesus to be taught so that he could love God more appropriately with his mind, how much more is it necessary for us, his people, to fill our minds with Christ-exalting truth, to learn and memorize portions of Scripture so that we can use it to worship God with our mind, to love God with our mind. And not to belabor the point, the next idea, to love God with all of our strength, brings together all these various elements, our heart, soul, and mind. Our heart, our soul, and mind are distinguished in the words of Christ, but they, should be, they shouldn't be thought of as separate as three distinct and separate things. No, this is all, this is the invitation to follow him with our everything. In his book on Christology, Mark Jones, a Presbyterian pastor and author, explained it this way. Just as God's attributes cannot be divided, so these elements of our being cannot be divided. In other words, just as God's power is his love, is his wisdom, is his eternality, is his knowledge, and so on, our heart is our soul, is our mind, is our strength. To love God with all of our strength then is to love God with all of our being, which includes, involves the whole man, both body and soul. And this is why Jesus connected the two. In the passage, this is why the word all is repeated four times. 
In the Greek, all four commandments are prefaced with this Greek preposition, ex, ek, highlighting that we, we love God not only with our whole heart, but from our whole heart. Does this sound like some kind of boutique spirituality? Does this sound like something that we just kind of add to our resume that at the end of a list that I'm also a religious person or a Jesus follower so that people would speak good things about me one day at a funeral, that I would appear to be more holy than I am? This following Jesus thing is way more radical than the Western world seems to think. This is what a life of a disciple of Jesus would look like being conformed into the image of Jesus. And we aren't trying to jump and touch the moon either. Look at what Philippians 2 explains this. The Holy Spirit supernaturally is working in us in verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is doing this in us to will and to work. Apart from God's transforming power in our lives, we're not willing ourselves or working towards anything. This is what God is doing in us. And as we are conformed to the image of Christ, he is made more and more the center of all things. Again, not perfectly, but increasingly in our lives, the watching world should see this. There's this thing, if, I don't know if you're on Facebook, there's this thing going on on Facebook right now of how well have you aged? Have you seen this? And people are posting back to back like their picture when they joined Facebook. Less wrinkles, many of us less pounds versus what you look like now. And it's kind of fun to see everybody posting these things up. I have noticed that really the only people that are posting most of these actually look better now than they looked before. I didn't post mine. For that reason. So I was reading this and seeing those things and laughing a bit. I, if we're to be transformed, increasingly transformed into the image of God, I wonder what our spiritual maturity looks like as we could look back 10 years and compare Christ formed in us now with what he was doing then. And prayerfully that we would look more like Christ now. Again, not perfectly, but increasingly. Because we are literally being transformed, as it says, as Paul says, from one degree of glory to the next. This is not a game. This is not as a ritualistic. This is not just religion where we show up and sing some songs and feel better about ourselves and go home. No, this is the real deal. This is us conforming into the image of Christ, of him being formed in us in an increasing way, this is the, what's, what we would call the process of sanctification. Jesus explains, first he calls the disciples, then he begins to explain what this would really look like in his explanation that we would love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not some form of boutique Christianity, but let me finish with this caution, this third snapshot in Luke 10, flip over a few chapters, if you will. Here's the caution that this is not a call to just try harder or to work more. If you leave here just saying, you know what, I'm a terrible Christian and I'm just got to really just uh, buckle it up and just try so much harder, then you've missed the whole point. 
The point is that when we follow Jesus in a very deeply and personal way, it leads to godly activity from the inside out as our heart is changed, as our mind is renewed, as our emotions are enlivened as we follow Jesus, then our activity follows. I think we see this best in this story interaction with Mary and Martha. You know this passage more than likely. Let me read it to you quickly. In verse 38 of Luke chapter 10, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him to her house. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listening to his teaching. And listened to his teaching, but Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about so many things, but this one thing is necessary. And Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken from her. See, two women diligently serving Jesus, working hard to serve and follow Jesus. Sometimes we paint this picture as, uh, you know, Mary is, uh, is the one that's not doing any of the work, and Martha's the one that's doing all the work. But that's not necessarily true. But as we introduce to these ladies, for one, Jesus has a commendation, and to one, he gives a pretty stern rebuke. I think we can learn a lot here. At the core of Martha's effort to follow Jesus, to serve Jesus, is busyness, activity, and action. She just wants to keep herself busy for the Lord. At the core of Mary's effort to serve and follow Jesus is a personal relationship. Mary hasn't been inactive. If you look at the passage, it actually says, my sister has left me. That means at one point, Mary was in there with Martha helping do whatever needed to be done, but that was until Jesus showed up. That's become the greater priority for Mary was to be with Jesus, not do stuff for Jesus. Being in his presence and hearing his voice in the depths of her heart, that was her priority. Martha comes in the room, tells Jesus, Jesus, make Mary serve you like I'm serving you. Jesus basically responds, Martha, I didn't come here for a seven-course meal in the first place. I wanted this. Mary at the foot and feet of Jesus. I've been one of those work-for-God people my whole life. And as long as I feel that I'm busy doing good things, for him than he is near, but that's certainly not the truth. And I think this is why this is the caution. Because if we didn't end the sermon this way, I think a lot of us would leave out here with greater resolve to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But we would be like the little kid trying to jump up and touch the moon. Because we can't do this in our strength. If anything, John 15 taught us as we t- uh, looked at it last week. What did he say? Apart from me, you can do nothing. I remember illustration when I was in, uh, when I first became a youth pastor, I was going to put on my first disciple now. And if you know what that is, that's when you kind of get teenagers to come and stay in homes through the weekend and you have a couple services. And in a sense, I think it's called disciple now, but 
I've never been to one that really focuses on discipleship. It was, for me, it was this, like, uh, like this emotional boost, booster shot that would get you to camp. Like, you got to get to camp, right? Because you had this real, just, you know, spiritual high then, and now the kids have forgotten to love Jesus and honor their parents, and they're, you know, living like heathens. So we need to put something right here. I remember having my first one, and uh, I was just thinking, man, I've just got to make this thing amazing. And so we were bringing in uh, Shane and Shane to come and lead worship. And this was before they were a big deal, right? They still traveled in a minivan at this point. But I remember just working feverishly to get this thing set up. And I wanted to have the gymnasium that uh, was attached to the gym. I wanted to have it just perfect. And I wanted to have, you know, lights up. And I wanted to have it just to, you know, the ambiance just had to be right. You know, Shane and Shane's coming to lead and Dean out. All this work and these host homes and these kids showed up. and I remember just being exhausted. Kind of me, me coming down the mountain too after that event. And God, as, as far as we could see, nothing happened. Like the, no, no lives were really changed. I mean, it was cool to hear, you know, the worship, but that was really about it. I remember very distinctly, I wrote it down in my journal one day asking God after that event, God, what happened? We did all this work. And he said, Luke, you never, you never sat at my feet. You never asked me to move in the hearts of these kiddos. You just thought it was all spiritual activity. As long as you worked and worked and worked and you created the right environment that, that you could create something in which I would do something. But I don't work like that. I don't need the seven-course meal. I don't need the trappings and the adornment. I don't need the boutique spirituality. I don't need any of that. What I want is you at my feet. And that's why in churches all across the West that we can, we can have events and activities and we can have special weekends and disciple nows and we can, I mean, we know how to work for Jesus. We can do these incredible things. How many of us just wake up with this longing to spend time with him, to, to give him our heart, to love him in this incredible way where, forget all the activity, I just, I just long to sit at the feet of Jesus, to hear him speak over me and into my life. God wants your heart. He wants all of you, starting with your heart, not your work and not your action, not just your character formation of all the do's and don'ts. He wants your heart. Remember falling in love? You know, falling in love for the first time when, when someone else had your heart. It didn't matter what it cost you. I remember having a couple different jobs and I picked Ashley up and took her on a date. We went to Ryan's. No, Shoney's. It was Shoney's. Ryan's was the first Valentine's. Two fails. Um, we went. I don't know if Shoney's all that bad. They used to have that breakfast bar. It was pretty, it was pretty legit. All the bacon you can eat. That's, that's pretty legit. We went to Shoney's and to see this cheesy uh, Christian movie, The Omega Code. It might be your favorite. I'm sorry if that's what it was. Um, I had no money. We walked in. I paid this exorbitant amount. It wasn't a matinee. I took her to the evening movie, right? I was like, I asked her if she wanted anything. She said, oh, I've just loved the, the biggest water they got. 
It was six bucks for a water. And I was like, I couldn't eat the rest of the week, right? It was like this. And she didn't know that. It's just, you know, small price to pay. I, she just, she had my heart. And so then she went to Natchitoches to school. And I would go down there and she would come up and we would talk on the phone uh, endless amounts. We would like just get on the phone to hear each other breathe. It was just the weirdest thing. I don't even know what that was about, right? She made her first B in college and hated me for it for a minute, right? Because she was on the phone with me the whole time. She couldn't study. But she... I remember the first night being married, just laying in bed and thinking, I, no one has to go home. Like, we can... She has my heart. We can be together. And that relationship, on the deepest emotional level that you've ever experienced, pales in comparison to what the invitation of God to us to give him our hearts, to love him from our heart. He wants your heart, friend. I mean, I mean the, the deepest definition of who you are, that's what he wants. That's what he's asking, not, not to do all the things. Now, doing all the things is going to come with this. As he gets your heart, you're, you're serving him not out of duty, but out of delight because of all that he's done. And he's working in you, and it just opens up these new chambers of love in your heart that you didn't ever even know were there. And your hearts are filled with gratitude because of all that he's done. And you, you stand in worship from the very depths of your heart because you've been walking with him all week. Listen, Christ in you is the hope of the world. Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's the hope of the world. Not bigger church buildings, not better apologetics. I'm not saying those things are wrong, but Christ in you is the hope of glory. Christ being formed in you. How do we move from Jesus on a beach in Galilee to Jesus living through his people in Shreveport Bossier. And this is it, by giving him our hearts, from loving him with our hearts, our mind and soul and strength. I don't know your faith story very well. Some of you may be better than others. But I feel like we're probably all on this different scale of walking with him. And some of him, it's been just duty. We've just done it because that's what a good Christian's supposed to do. They're supposed to give and they're supposed to work. And if that's your definition or understanding of Christi Christianity, I want to give you an opportunity just to repent of that. To take a step of faith and to give him your heart. All of it. All of you. Maybe some are like Martha. You've kind of just veered into, man, this is how I serve Jesus well. There was a time you can remember where you loved him, but somewhere along the way, you've let that love kind of just fizzle out. You just need to ask him that he would renew that, that he would give you taste buds on the tip of your tongue that desire, right, to walk with him and to hear from him. And then in a room this size, there's no doubt there's probably people even amongst us today who've never stepped across any sort of line of faith. You may have played religious games for a long time, but you've never pushed all the chips to the center of the table and say, Jesus, I need you. 
I want you to have the opportunity to do that. I'm going to pray for us in a minute, and we're going to have communion. Communion is just this great reminder of this unique union of us with Christ. And as we literally ingest the bread and the drink, that we're to be reminded again and again of what Christ did for us so that he could be alive in us. You don't have to be a member here to partake, but you do have to be part of God's family. You trusted him. I'm going to pray for us, and I'll be in the back if you'd like to pray, but I want to give you some space right where you are just to listen to the voice of God. The Holy Spirit knows what's going on in your life way better than I ever could. He knows better than even you know, probably, as he begins to reveal as he convicts of sin, as he leads you into all truth, John 14 talks about. As he works to conform you into the image of Jesus. Would you invite him even now that, Holy Spirit, would you just speak to me? In the very depths of my heart and soul, would you speak to me? Would you lead me into this next season of my life? God, you're so good to us. Your word tells us that your mercy is anew every morning, that your long-suffering is ever-present. That you who have begun a good work in us is going to complete it. And some of us haven't been willing participants in this completion. I pray, Father, that you would bring conviction where sin's in our life, that you would renew our passion where we've grown weak and weary, that you would bring healing where there's brokenness. That we would understand once again that this is not some boutique spirituality that we're after. We'd feel a little better about ourselves, but you at the very center of all things, every thought, every action, every decision, whether big or small, to run those through the lens of your heart for the world. Lord, we admit that many of us have mistaken religious activity with really walking with you. And I ask for forgiveness of my own heart when I slip into that mode. I pray that we would be a people that really grasp this idea of you in us, the very hope of glory, the hope of the world that you would do a unique, unique thing in us as you call us closer to yourself, as we do life and community together, that we would be pictures of, of the gospel to a lost world. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. I'll be in the back to pray if you'd like to. There's communion service are up here. You come when you're ready.